I'm Monsignor Bill Parent, pastor of St. Elizabeth Church, and you're listening to the St. Elizabeth Church Podcast. This episode is one of five talks by our parish clergy from our 2021 Lenten series, Three Simple Things, Truth, Accountability, and Transparency in Our Church and Nation. Here is my first talk in this series, recorded live on Tuesday, February 23rd. So let's, let's uh, jump in to three simple things, 2021, truth, accountability, and transparency in our church and nation. After all we've been through since the McCarrick scandal broke in the summer of 2018, what we've been through as a church, what we have been through together as a parish, I felt an obligation to address these issues at least one more time since the publication of the McCarrick report in early November. I suppose the question before us tonight is this. Did the McCarrick report provide the three simple things that we asked and prayed for as a parish in late 2018 and in 2019? The short answer to that question I believe, is yes and no, (laughs) which I will explain over the course of this talk. I read the 449-page report within a couple of days of its publication, and I, I plan to write something for our website and bulletin and be done with it before Christmas. But every time I started writing, it just did not feel right. As winter fell, COVID got worse, as did the controversy surrounding our presidential election. We were all so preoccupied with these truly urgent crises, and McCarrick seemed like ancient history. So I decided to wait until Lent. The topic felt properly penitential, and it truly has been penitential to dredge all these things up for me personally uh, one more time. But then something dawned on me as our post-election politics got increasingly unhinged. Our secular political leaders, and I would include our news media and social media controllers in this category, our secular political leaders seem to be suffering the same pattern of failure that was so evident in our church leadership throughout the McCarrick scandal. And I'm not, when I'm looking at the secular leaders, I'm not just talking about Trump, though he might well be Exhibit A. 
all across our political spectrum of our political leaders, failures of truth, accountability, and transparency seem epidemic. What is going on here? Again, I'll offer a short answer that will be filled out over these five Lenten holy hours. We tend to imagine that our political divisions, both in our church and in our nation, as divisions between the political or theological left and the political or theological right. While there is certainly some truth to this view, I would argue, and I'm certainly not alone in making this argument, that the primary political division in our church and nation is between the elite and everyone else. And the elite systematically fails to be truthful, accountable, or transparent for two primary reasons. First, because truth, accountability, and transparency threaten their hold on power. And second, because the rest of us allow them to manipulate us and get away with their failures to be truthful, accountable, and transparent. The first reason the threat to elite power does not imply grand conspiracies or that the elite are even conscious of the ways that they consolidate their powers, their power by their failures to be truthful, accountable, and transparent. The second reason, our complicity, is why our topic in these holy hours is not mere finger-pointing or virtue-signaling about, about the sins of the elite. In varying degrees, the rest of us are complicit in their sins through our own less-than-virtuous attitudes towards truth. So let's, let's keep this overarching problem of elitism and its twofold rationale in mind as we dive into the McCarrick Report. First, let's consider what the McCarrick Report got right, the yes in my yes and no answer. The report is certainly a step in the right direction for Catholic truth and transparency. It contains many astonishing and painful details about McCarrick's rise from priest to bishop to archbishop and ultimately to cardinal. In important ways, the report confirmed the overall outline of McCarrick's ascendancy, as had been widely reported prior to the report, including my own reports to you, since I was an insider with the McCarrick administration for a while. Specifically, the rumors about McCarrick 
had always involved young adult seminarians and priests, never minors. The first credible allegation of sexual abuse of a minor was reported in June of 2017, and the church reacted swiftly. Additional credible allegations of the sexual abuse of minors subsequently surfaced, though the report does not go into any detail about those. But what about those young adult priests and seminarians? What we know now, it's clear in the report, we know it without a doubt, is that McCarrick frequently shared beds with young adult seminarians and priests, usually at a New Jersey beach house, and the Vatican knew this when they sent him to us as our archbishop. I'll say more about this revelation in a moment. For now, let's accept the report at face value when it states that until 2007, the Vatican had no indication of misconduct in those beds McCarrick shared. It's more complicated than that, but you have to read the report to get into it. But it, it became clear by 2007 there was some misconduct there. Even now, the details are hazy because the two most damning priest witnesses against McCarrick are highly suspect. I do happen to know a lot about one of those priests, priest one, as he appears in the report. And I will say this much, I would not believe a single word he has said about McCarrick. I say this not to defend McCarrick in any way. I believe he deserves the punishment that he has received. I'm just saying that I find the report's account of the ascendancy of of McCarrick, that I find that account seems to be largely true in what it contains. But I also believe the report has three major deficiencies. So on to the no part of my yes and no answer. The first deficiency is a glaring omission that renders the entire document suspect. At least the report admits the omission. Actually, it's more of a gloss than an admission. On page four, there's a stunning paragraph that glosses the literally millions of dollars that McCarrick raised and gave to foundations and bishops and cardinals above and below the table. I would summarize this stunning paragraph as follows. Trust us, money had nothing to do with any of this. On a scale of one to 10, for transparency, where one is the transparency of granite and 10 is clear crystal, I would rate this statement as a zero. 
In one of my 2018 homilies addressing the McCarrick scandal, I said outright that the only way to get to the truth would involve following the money. It's, it's, it's almost, it is, it's a cliche. You have to follow the money to get at the truth of this kind of corruption. The report's failure to do so, in my view, renders everything else in it suspect. One cannot help but wonder what else was omitted. The second major deficiency of the report is hiding in plain sight, so to speak. Specifically, as I have already noted, the Vatican knew that McCarrick was routinely sharing beds with young adult seminarians and priests. Not in an emergency, not in a case of poverty, not by accident, but by design. This alone should have been enough to at least stop his ascendancy because it is a grotesque abuse of power for a bishop in the Catholic Church to coerce seminarians and priests under his authority, 30 and 40 years his junior, to share a bed with him. The report describes tortured conversations among bishops trying to justify this behavior because McCarrick had a lonely childhood and, and longed for human connections. Reading this, I just wanted to scream, what's wrong with you? Don't you see what's right in front of you? Apparently not. The third major deficiency, to some degree, flows from the first two. The doubts raised by the omission of money and the inability to recognize the abuse of power in coerced bed-sharing renders other features of the report less credible. For example, it has widely been noted that everyone who clearly did something wrong in the report is either dead or named Vigano. I'm not going to wade into that swamp, but I will only observe that had the report been transparent about money and the abuse of power, I would be personally much more willing to trust its version of the rise and fall of McCarrick than I do. So, did the McCarrick report provide the three simple things that we asked for and prayed for as a parish in, in late 2018 and in 2019? Yes and no. Which is another way of saying that we are not yet the perfect church that Jesus created us to be and calls us to be. Though ever so slowly, we seem to be moving in the right direction. Most of our bishops seem to have moved on and consider the McCarrick Report to be the last chapter of that ugly story. But the story is not over in at least two ways. First, 
Virtually none of our bishops to date have honestly answered an all-important twofold question about McCarrick's coerced bed sharing. What did you know and when did you know it? As McCarrick's former vocations director, I answered that for you the first Sunday after the scandal broke. Why aren't they answering? The answer is obvious, I think, because it would threaten their power. I say that not as one who wants to tear down the hierarchy of the Catholic Church any more than I want to tear down the elite in our nation. I'm not advocating blowing it all up and starting over at year zero. The church needs good and capable bishops, just as our nation needs a good and capable elite. Radicals and populists are often right in their critiques of elites, but wrong in their revolutions and attempts to create a society without elites. It never works. We need good and capable elites. We need good and capable bishops. Our problem, therefore, is not elitism per se, Our problem is the corruption of our elite in their failures in truth, accountability, and transparency. A second way that this story is not over is that McCarrick is still alive. You may remember that early on I described what we're facing in the church today as our Judas problem a problem that has been with the church from the very beginning. The Judas problem is when someone trusted in the inner circle betrays Jesus and everything the church stands for. But recall that Peter also famously betrayed Jesus. So betrayal alone is not what set Judas apart. As far as the betrayal part, we all have a little Judas in us, though we might not quite be in the inner circle. McCarrick is certainly both betrayer and one who has fallen from the inner circle. What set Judas apart from Peter is not betrayal, but rather despair. Nothing in our Christian faith requires Judas to despair and commit suicide. Judas could have become a great saint. Judas could have become one of the greatest saints in the history of the church. His story could have been an even greater turnaround than Peter's turnaround story. But Judas despaired and never sought forgiveness, which more than betrayal is what sets him apart from the other 11 apostles. The alternative to despair for Christians is, in a word, hope. Unlike Judas, 
Peter lived in hope, the hope that somehow, in a way he could not possibly have foreseen, that he might be forgiven. McCarrick is still alive, and so there is still hope for him. Father Harry Stokes, who you may remember as a former associate pastor here at St. E's, was also fairly close to McCarrick. Father Stokes recently tracked down McCarrick and called him. He kind of felt sorry for McCarrick. He's in residence, McCarrick, for a place for recovering clergy, offending clergy, out west somewhere. They spoke at some length, and McCarrick said that he's now praying for three and four hours a day, something he admits he's never done before in his life. He said he never imagined he'd be living this way, and he maintains that he has not done everything he has been accused of, which may be true, but is ultimately unimportant for the rest of us now. What is important is that he repents and seeks God's mercy. Please do hope and pray for him tonight. But I don't think that the Judas problem is the best fit for the corruption of our elite. It fits McCarrick but not the rest so well, whether they're bishops in our church or leaders of our nation. Which brings us to the scripture passage that I read earlier, the exchange between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. What is epidemic in our church and nation today, I would suggest, is a Pilate problem. Pontius Pilate is an eerily modern figure with regards to the truth. In this famous scene, he literally stares truth in the face and asks a timeless question, what is truth? We know from what follows, we're all very familiar with the story, that this is not a sincere question about the difficulty of discerning truth. Truth at times is indeed difficult to discern because of the complexity or the depth of what we encounter. Yet Pilate already knows the truth about Jesus, specifically that he should not be crucified. Pilate's problem is not an intellectual problem of knowing, no. Pilate's truth problem is a lack of courage. Pilate is certainly elite as a Roman governor, but he is also afraid. He is afraid of losing control of a potentially violent mob and the political consequences of losing such control. In this context, what is truth is a cynical question, a question that undermines truth in its asking a question that sets up the most famous hand-washing in history. Pilate's problem with truth is its utility. In other words, what do you do with truth? What purpose does truth serve? Pilate's fear opens him to the possibility 
that truth can be ignored if it's useful to ignore it. And as we know, that's exactly what Pilate did in washing his hands of the truth about Jesus. Pilate is eerily modern precisely because he subordinates truth to its utility. Much modern philosophy is founded on the idea that truth does not really exist, but is merely a useful tool for the acquisition of power. What we say is true is just a tool for power. It's not really true. Pilate is not quite there yet because he is still haunted by truth. It would take over 1,800 years for the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche to make a clean break by saying there is no truth, there is only a will to power. But Pilate is well along that path in asking what is truth. Notice that what Jesus says to Pilate completely contradicts this modern project of subordinating the truth to its usefulness in acquiring power. Here's what Jesus said again. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. That's a very interesting turn of phrase. Everyone who belongs to the truth. Compare that to a very common 2021 term, specifically, my truth. My truth has become a standard shorthand way of saying that we're all free to believe more or less whatever we want to believe is true. My truth serves me. But to say, on the other hand, as Jesus says, everyone who belongs to the truth necessarily implies that the truth does not belong to us. Truth can never be my truth. To the contrary, we belong to the truth. It's a profound implication. Belonging to the truth is a way of saying that we recognize that truth is something greater than ourselves, that, we, that cannot be changed to serve our desires or our will to power. And the stakes here for Christians are very high. Truth is why Jesus came. Truth is not a second-order consideration for Christians. Truth is the very heart of the gospel. Truth is an end in itself for us because Jesus is God's truth made flesh. In our gospel passage, we heard Jesus say as much to Pilate, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. The turn towards truth and its corollaries, accountability and transparency, always begins as an inward turn. If we as a church fail to live for the truth, how will the world come to know Jesus Christ? 
if we as individuals fail to live for God's truth, how will the world come to know Jesus Christ? And don't be mistaken here. Living by the truth does not mean being perfect. Of course we will fail. Of course we will sin. But the truth is that Jesus Christ loves us and forgives our sins if we allow him to do so. So where do we go from here with our pilot problem in our church and our nation? We'll try to delve into that over the next four Tuesdays. For, for now, tonight, as we stare truth in the face in adoration, may we pray for the wisdom and courage to speak and live God's truth as a step towards reforming our church and nation.